Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We begin today. We begin the end by, we, we're going to wrap up 2020 in like three different ways. One way <laughs> we're going to wrap it up is doing buy, sell, hold today on the big books of 2020. Not our favorite, not the best, but what were the books from 2020 that have or will make headlines and whether or not we would buy, hold, or sell stock in them based on what we think they're going to do in the future. The future being, you know, where are they going to land in the firmament of books and reading for years to come? Um, so we had some crossover. We had some unique for each. Um, and so we're going to go through them and talk about whether or not we think we should buy, sell, hold them, why they're on this list, uh, and see where we agree and uh, disagree. Um, I was on a call earlier, Rebecca, where mm-hmm. I've been on calls all week with um, publishers talking to them about how 2020 went, how they're expecting 2021 to go. And one thing that's almost universally mentioned is books sold this year, but damned if it wasn't hard to sell something to someone that was new to them in terms of a new author, uh, a new mm-hmm. genre. Um, people were reading for comfort, and comfort generally means the familiar. So you might have read a book by an author you knew, even if the book was something you haven't read before. You may go back and reread old things. You may go back, you may have read the next installment of a popular series. Um, which there are a couple of those that land here. Mm-hmm. So it's always hard uh, to to sell debuts, new fiction, new titles, new ideas. And that is more true this year than ever. Um, I remember you and, you and I were in a meeting one time at BA years ago, and I remember someone saying, I, I wish I could remember who said it in a publisher meeting, saying, the only thing harder than selling debut fiction is selling poetry. So I think that's very much true here. We have some debut fiction on this list. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll see how we do. Any other thoughts about as you were putting this list together? Was it hard? Was it easy? Was it, were there things you left out that maybe you should put on? How did you find the experience of trying to figure out what the notable books of 2020 were? Man, I found it a little bit harder than I anticipated. I Mm. think I went back to our lists of um, the fall book preview and then the early 2020 book preview, which that that episode happened before COVID. So like basically all those predictions are shot Mm -hmm. (laughs) now. Um, And it was just interesting looking at the list of books and thinking about what this year has been and how like there, the year has been defined by so many things, or actually by so few things. I really think this year has been so defined by COVID and by the election that it's hard to think about. Oh, and you know, also by the um, Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. movement this summer, it's hard to think about just like regular literary stuff happening this year and thinking about 2020 in terms of those things. Like I've read a lot of great books this year, but it's just not the thing that I've been thinking about. So it was interesting to come back and look at what we have been talking about as the books of the year. And I sort of went through the lens of, you know, if this had been a quote unquote normal Mm -hmm. year, what would we be talking about right now as a big book of the year? And what are we going to maybe be looking at instead? And how is this weird moment in history going to be coming through the lens of um, the books that we're still holding on to from it five or 10 or 20 years? from now it's it's strange mm-hmm. in, a, in a lot of ways it feels like the big books of the year were books that didn't come out this year being how to be anti-racist stamped so you want to mm-hmm. talk about race like those yeah. will be books that people remember from 2020 even though they came out i think all of those came out um last year crawdads yeah. i guess continues to sell very well even though it doesn't appear mm-hmm. on any of the bestseller list because we try to hide what the truth of pu- publishing is apparently for reasons <laughs> that i understand and vehemently disagree with but like in terms of books that actually came out this calendar year i did leave off such a fun age for this mm-hmm. one i think let's start there real quick because we could have put it on there and i guess i found myself being surprised such a fun age by kylie reed we did a whole episode on it we've recommended it before 
I think I'm selling such a fun age, I realized. Um, mm. I think it's a book that it, it's hard for contemporary fiction to endure if the top, if, if the content is fairly au courant. Like, and this feels like you really need to be in this historical moment to get what's going on here. Now, maybe I'll be wrong in the future and it will feel relevant th- in the future, but it really feels like a place and a time kind of a book. And I'm just not sure how that's going to hold up over time. So I read it soon, I guess. Go ahead and read it. And maybe I'll be wrong. I would love to be wrong. But I think it's going to be one where it's going to feel like a period piece. Um, and I'm not, those tend not to hold up as well over time. What, what do you think about that, Rebecca? Am I off base Ooh, with that's that? That's a good question. No, I'm between holding and selling yeah. that. I think that if if this had been a normal year, that would have been the big novel about contemporary race issues that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think it would have endured through most of the year. It was, you know, a Reese's book club pick. There's an adaptation coming when the paperback comes out. I think it will probably do very well in paperback, like whenever they decide to do that. But as you said, like the, the books just uh, that were fundamentally about the issue of race became the books that we really discovered right. we need to read and need to like re go back to those um, foundational questions this year. So I, I don't know. I think you're right that it will be a period piece. I kind of want any contemporary <laughs> novel that deals with race to ultimately become a period piece as, an, yes. as evidence of progress and change. Um, so I think it would be interesting, like, I don't know, I took a great class in college that was like functionally, you know, race through fiction um, over like 50 years. And it was interesting to see the arc of how, you know, racial issues showed up in stories between 1950 and 2000, mm. basically. And that did shift and change. And the, the kind of story that Kylie Reed tells in Such a Fun Age is a very 2019, 2020 yes. kind of story about a particular cultural moment. And I think it may hold up very well as an artifact of that, but it will probably slash hopefully not be like the current relevant one for mm-hmm. another 20 years. Yeah. I mean, some of the pleasure is, is a weird word to put, but some of the pleasure of that book is the shock of recognition that, you know, people mm-hmm. like the people in this book that you sometimes act like people in people's book, at least for me, I should say. And I hope that won't be as resonant in five, ten, or twenty years for right, readers right. as it is now. So um, that that's well put. So anyway, that was kind of a, an asterisk, you know. Unfortunately, with such a fun age, it's December thirty first, twenty nineteen. But we start there before we get to our yeah. first sponsor break, and then we'll uh, roll into the rest of the list. I guess you know I was thinking about this. I was thinking about you know how books get remembered. I was kind of looking at last you know years past, the last few years mm. we've done wrap up shows. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply to sort of see if there's any historical data to use. The the sad truth of the matter is that most books you should sell, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean it's just true like most the, the default you you should sell most books because mm-hmm. there's so many and so few of them get remembered because more come out. And every year I look at the list of books coming out I'm like, boy, there are 10 or 15 books here that could be, you know, modern classics and there's a lot of good books. I like a lot of them and any one of them could be a modern classic. But for whatever reason, you know, bias or preference or word of mouth or luck or whatever else it might be, only a few end up surviving. So I guess that's the the books that are on this list at all, we think even have a chance of not being a sell, right? I mean, is that a fair way of putting it? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's fair and really 
accurate like especially if you look at what we've thought about as the modern canon mm-hmm. and like the books that go on required reading lists for high school and college students those have largely been pretty static lists for like yeah. i mean for way it longer so than hard to be, crack for, they're really hard yeah, to crack for 50 or 60 years and that's like you know maybe one book from every two or three years of publishing yeah. in the last 50 years lands on that list it's just really really difficult to rise to that level like those are the outliers of outliers i think that um that we're still reading and talking about if not just 20 like 50 or 100 years later so yeah i think if we were just trying to be purely practical we would sell almost everything Mm -hmm. (laughs) on this list forever um but that's not as much fun as no it's not as much fun so maybe maybe our baseline is sell and so if we're selling we're double selling if hold, it's kind of like we're buying. And if we're buying, we're, we're super high on. Yeah, you're right. That, mm-hmm. that category of getting into like high school reading lists or college reading lists is the highest bar. The next bar is um, the kind of like paperback favorites destination, yeah, the, right? Like, I think so. The like household name book yeah. club favorite kind of situation. Right. Yeah. 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 Which probably sells better maybe even than getting on the high school reading. I, I'm not sure what the – yeah, your upside is like, is this the kind of book that's going to be an all-time classic? Nobel Prize, Pulitzer Prize, huge career. Is it going to be something that makes it onto reading lists and syllabi? Is it going to make it onto paperback favorites? Is it going to be a part of a writer's career that future installments will give lift? And I've got a couple on here that I'm buying maybe not based on the title – but where mm. it falls in the arc of the reader's car- uh, of the writer's career, right? Will it get l- future okay. lift or future things going forward? All right, let's just take these in order of the ones we have in common. The first one we have is Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Rebecca, are you buy, selling, or holding Cast by Isabel Wilkerson? I think that this is maybe the strongest buy Agree. on the list. Total agree. Wilkerson, yeah, her... Warmth of Other Sons is a historical document that's going to be important for a long time. I think Cast is a historical document that's going to be important for a long time. And that also represents not the first time the idea that she's discussing has mm-hmm. been introduced, that there's not just a divide between white people and people of color, but a whole caste system built into our society and societies around the world based on within groups, color differences, um, and like how that is woven into systems and institutions. Like This is not a new concept, but she's the first one to say it really loudly in this way with so much data and research behind her. And I think we're going to go back to this book for years and years. I think it's going to tick many of the boxes that we just talked about in terms of the good destinies for books. I think it's going to be on syllabi. You know, it's going to be Mm -hmm. a very welcome addition to many kinds of cultural studies, history, sociology, anthropology. Like you could put it on, like think of the liberal arts syllabi this can go on. Think, I mean, there's just a billion of those. It's also accessible enough that it's not just a textbook. Um, and I think you have good evidence from Warmth of Other Sun. That book sells. That book continues to sell. You see it on nonfiction favorites kinds of lists and things of that nature. We talk about it a lot when we do recommendation shows. And it's a galaxy brain version. It's a, it's a galaxy brain moment for thinking about bias, prejudice, bigotry, mm-hmm. systemic isms of all kind in a way that hasn't been articulated in a, in a mass culture. So I think on an audio situation, it's very listenable. I think you're buying Wilkerson's career. Now yeah. she's, she's got many more books at Hedver. Um, I think it's a more generally applicable idea than Warmth of Other Sons, which is very specific about America's moment in time of a black diaspora out of the South, a wonderful historical document. But Cast is, Cast is a, a, you know, a paradigmatic definition that's going to be so useful for so long. You could think of it as one of, you know, as one of those great crossover texts that, you know, like Theory of the Re- Leisure Class by Torstein Veblen or things that become Penguin Classics and get that turquoise cover that just gets sold and becomes part of people's understanding forever. I think it's an extremely strong buy. If I only had one book to one book to pick as a buy, I'm picking this. Mm-hmm. And if I had two, I think I'd use both my picks on cat. I don't even know if I have another <laughs> one here, frankly, that I feel nearly as strongly about. So I, I, yeah. I'm not surprised we're on the same page. I think, yeah, I think you could take, you know, cast and put it alongside some works of great black fiction like you could take mm. cast 
and the bluest eye and then the vanishing half from this year then yeah. those are just a few examples that are like top of mind to me and we've you know use cast as the base for mm-hmm. the conversation and then read a bunch of fiction through those lenses if you're a teacher and you're looking for an idea there you go yeah. i just think it's it's going to be relevant for and useful for so long and she has a really magical ability to take these big difficult ideas and these big difficult truths and lay them out in a way that is inarguable and also that like you don't want to argue with them i don't think that people are defensive in the face of isabel wilkerson in the ways that some readers may be defensive in the face of like uh some of ibram kendi's books especially Uh, the or some of the more confrontational ways of writing about race and that's not to say that i don't think that we should write about race confrontationally there are a lot of things in that conversation especially for white people that should be confrontational and that we should have to look at and there's also real value in having it laid out in this way that wilkerson does intellectually where it's like these are just facts and Mm. once you see the world through this lens you can't unsee it yeah it's so readerly too i think that's an interesting frame to think like the opening the opening i don't want to spoil but like the opening of cast just wades you in narratively so beautifully Mm -hmm that I think it does pave the way to a receptiveness on the part of the reader that can be difficult and it, with other tactics. And there's pros and cons to both of it. But right. I think that readerliness of it formally is very interesting. Like you think about sociological tests from the past that are also very interesting formally. You think of like Souls of Black Folk by W. Du Bois, mm-hmm. which has become a classic in its own right, but also a classic as a tool for other things. And I think your point is well taken that cast itself is worth reading, but then a very useful lens on through which to look at other things. So it has that, that multiplicative effect that can happen there. So cast by Isabel Wilkerson, as a both by. We're going to go, next is a book we talked about on this show. We did a whole episode about weather by Jenny Offal. Her second novel feels au courant, feels experimental, feels both like you get the shock of re- recognition, but also the shock of the new uh, formerly with Weather by Jenny, Jenny Offal. Rebecca, I'm going to throw it back to you. Are you buy, selling, or holding Weather by Jenny Offal? Oh, I'm so torn. <laughs> that means sell. You know, I'm going to think through it. Okay. Actually, I'm. I think that I'm holding Jenny Offal because she continues to level up. Mm-hmm. Weather captured, you know, weather came out this year, but is set in 2016, like right before the election. She doesn't say Trump's name, but she's right. clearly talking about him and really captured the existential feeling of that moment. And I just have so much faith in her ability to do that and to continue to do it more and more interestingly that like I kind of want the Jenny awful take on quarantine in 2020 but i want to read it in like four years Mm. and i think she'll i think that she will continue to look at these to look at like the very human mundane parts of these big moments in our collective experience in a way that's really compelling so i'm going to hold her because i think that her stock is going to continue to be valued yeah if it's awful i think i'm holding or buying jenny awful stock i think weather is great I think the the line between department and speculation and weather is not so great to distinguish between them. And if I had to guess, I would say that Jenny Offel's masterwork is ahead of her. And so, if mm-hmm. that is true, then you want to sell the rest of the of the rest of her corpus, right? Because if if the one that's going to be the one people read is yet to come, which I kind of feel like is the case, I don't know. We'll see. But I have great expectations for the future of her career, and she's just getting started, right? We've got two. Mm-hmm. Um, if again. I think books like this that are so specific and internal and small have a hard time in the future. They just don't, they're not narratively interesting enough for the book club scene. Are they culturally as interesting as say Transcendent Kingdom? Like as they complicated like Transcendent Kingdom like that. So it's kind of, I think it falls between a couple of interesting locations. Now, Maybe I'll be wrong by that. Maybe become something like Mrs. Dalloway, right? Which is maybe not. Uh, there's there's worse ways of thinking about weather than a modern Mrs. Dalloway in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like 
this isn't this is my cell isn't against weather specifically, but I think compared to what's to come, it's still preamble. So that's why mm-hmm. I'm selling it as much as anything. Okay. Cool. I'm All not right. mad at you. That's okay. Okay. Well, you know, mad's good. <laughs> it's a good podcast if you get mad. Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, uh, Britt Bennett's second novel. So much like where she is in Jenny Offal and frankly, Transcendent Kingdom by Yaa Jesse. A lot of a lot of deuces actually on our list here. Um, where do you want to go with Vanishing Half? I'm going to buy. Buy, okay. Yeah, I think that Vanishing Half itself is going to have a pretty solid life. You know, it's a 2020 book that deals with race and identity, but it's set mostly in the past, so it's not defined by this moment. You don't have to identify with being a person who's alive in this moment in order to appreciate it the way, like, you really need to have lived through 2016 (laughs) to to feel seen by weather, um, just as an example. And I think Britt Bennett's masterwork is ahead of Mm. her. So I'm going to buy, because I think we're going to see Vanishing Half continue to have legs, and the best is yet to come. So you're kind of like, you're thinking of it like maybe, again, it's not fair to compare anyone to the great Tomo, but like Bluest Eye, Sula, great books, but they are lifted in terms of their place because of Song of Solomon and Beloved and Paradise and things Mm -hmm. that come a little bit later. Yeah, I think I'm going to hold. I think this is one of those books that if it were not for COVID and the election, it would have done better because it's it stands well as a book about race in America. I think it's very narratively satisfying. Like, it's a good read. Uh, so it lends yeah. itself well to book clubs and things like that. You know, we've heard that there's options when the movie comes out or the whatever it's going to be, a chance for people to rediscover it. So maybe it'll get a second whack at the pinata for cultural relevance as a book um, when that comes back around. So it has a chance for a second life. So I'm going to hold it, which since our baseline is sell, is a vote of confidence in Vanishing Half and Britt Bennett. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I don't know what the, I think this is very accomplished. I'm still not sure what I'm, I, my mental model of what Brett Bennett can do is, is like with Transcendent Kingdom by uh, Jesse, which we might as well just get to that next. Um, I feel like I'm ready for anything, which is my state of being with Brett Bennett. I'm still zeroing in and I feel like it's not quite as open as Jesse, but still Mm -hmm. I don't have a good, I don't know. You could, I could go several, I could see several different ways of going, um, with Brett Bennett. So again, a second novel, is a really good indication um, of what you can expect. Whereas with Jenny Awful, I wouldn't expect a super traditional novel to come after this. Whereas I could see uh, Jesse doing something like Jenny Awful next, right? Like it's easier to go stranger than to come back um, from that. So I, I don't know. I, my sense of Brabant is a very interesting place right now. Transcendent Kingdom by uh, Jesse. I guess I've, I've made you go first. <laughs> um, I'm holding Transcendent Kingdom. I think I'm buying uh, Jesse's career. Uh, I think Homegoing has more going for it than Transcendent Kingdom in terms of complexity, scope, uh, and scale. Um, So I think it's the second of her two so far, though I think it's very good. And again, like I just said, you couldn't give me a price of uh, Jesse's stock I would not pay at this point. So that if it's the second of two and there's still more to come, I think I have to just hold at this point uh, with Transcendent Kingdom. All right. This is the one I haven't read yet. Okay. So I think I'm also just going to hold because I have a lot of faith in her. The yeah. Reviews are good. I trust you. Haven't experienced it myself to be in a place of All right. like I'm going to buy. So I'll just yeah. hold steady. I hold. think it'll be foolish to sell. It's foolish. foolish. I think, sell. Fo- yeah, I think yeah. Uh, bears, bears make money. Uh, bulls make money, pigs get slaughtered. I think you're being too clever by half if you're trying to sell anything by uh, Jesse right now. Yeah. While we're on the tip of things I haven't read, talk to me about Lying Life of Adults. Oh, yeah. I mean, I haven't read it either. But oh, it okay. Elena, so tell me about the it big, then. The big Elena yeah. Ferrante standalone novel this year. And I think the hype slash question for everyone was, will people read the standalone Elena mm-hmm. Ferrante novel? And will it have the same power that the... Um, whatever that quartet of books yeah, that I can Neapolitan never remember novels. the name is, <laughs> yeah. yes, um, that she wrote that I also didn't read. Um, I So I think I'm selling Lying Life of Adults. Not a knock on Ferrante. It's really very difficult, near impossible to get lightning to strike you twice. And the Neapolitan novels were such 
a runaway, mm-hmm. um, like just beloved reader sensation. There was kind of no way she was going to live up to that. Like hardly anybody in this position has a situation like that where they've got a hugely popular series and then the next thing they do is equally popular or even anywhere close. Um, so I think we have seen peak Ferrante mm. fever and we're on the back nine. So I'm selling. So maybe you could get a good price buying Ferrante right now. You know, this one, mm. we, neither of us read it. It hadn't made much of a splash. This might be the low point. It could be that she comes back. True. So there might be a kind of a hedge, right? Say, okay, mm-hmm. I'm not sure there's a whole lot of upside here, but there might not be a whole lot of downside for Ferrante um, at this point. I think that would be interesting as well. Uh, topics of conversation. I did read this. Boy, I forgot I read mm-hmm. this this year. This is like at a different Me decade. <laughs> it feels so long ago. Yeah. What do you want? What do you think about topics of conversation? Oh, I'm selling. It. Yeah, you me know, too. going into going into 2020, this was the like maybe this is this year's normal people is Miranda Popke going to sort of be on par with Sally Rooney, and it turns out that with the way this year shaped up a quiet novel of a person talking yeah a a woman just narrating stories about her life mainly her romantic experiences to other women in her life is not it's just not the thing that people are gravitating to i also think it's a real artifact of its time Mm. it feels very 2020 but not in a way that's going to be like that we're going to want to hold on to or refer Mm -hmm. back to i enjoyed reading it but Like I also forgot that I read it. So <laughs> it's very sh- it's very short. It's fairly elliptical. There's not a lot of there's not a lot to hold on to in my mind from topics of conversation. One mad at it. Um, I think for a sort of elliptical, thoughtful internal novel, uh, weather is going to stomp all mm-hmm. over topics of oh, conversation. Yeah. From uh, so it's it's very hard. But I'm I'm selling that too. I guess. Again, much like with um, Lying Life of Adults, maybe I'd be better off just holding it at this point because, you know, who are you selling your (laughs) topics of conversation stock to at this point um, is difficult to say. The next one is sort of a category of books. So let's do a sponsor break before, before we dive into it here. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You have Fear by Bob Woodward in here. My list was just all the Trump books. We can break them out. If not, I guess I'll take the lead here. Yeah. I'm not sure if the outcome of election would have made me feel differently about this. Um, but right now, I am selling the whole portfolio <laughs> of extant Trump books. They can all go. Because I think now that the Trump presidency is over, we will have the end cap book. And maybe it'll be a Woodward book. Maybe it'll be a trillion. You know, he does, he's done t- two Trump books. So maybe he'll do a third one about the end or like the the future history of whatever happens next with Trump as a public figure, as a person. And that becomes like Woodward's Trump tr- trilogy. And that will survive. But I think all the books by the, the hangers-ons, the orbiters, the Michael Wolfs, this is all interstitial, in-media res stuff. And this stuff doesn't hold up very well, right? I think it's going to be the thing mm-hmm. that comes as an end cap. And there is a buy book about the Trump regime, era, reign, idiocy. The Trump idiocy would be a great name for a book. <laughs> um, and that book written by the right person, maybe it's Maggie Haberman, right? I think that's the one I want. No, I, want the big, I want the big post-mortem Maggie Haberman Trump book. And I will buy stock in that. But everything else I'm selling, even the Woodward, even the great Woodward, mm-hmm. I think I'm selling at this point. Rebecca, am I right? Wrong? What do you yep. think about that? That's exactly where I am. Mm. I had put fear on the list because like, if I had to pick one yeah. of the Trump books, I think fear is the so far the most likely to have a life. But I also agree. like The story isn't actually over yet. Like We're sitting here. It's been a week. It's November 10th. It's been a week since the election. It's been four days since the election was called. The president has currently not acknowledged this Mm -hmm. and is like playing golf and pouting on Twitter. And uh, 
his advisors, I think, are torn about what they're saying to him and trying to get him to come around to reality or not. And like, and I've been saying for the last week, like, I can't wait for the big behind the scenes yeah, reveal right. of like, you know, insiders telling the story about just what this week alone mm. has been like. <laughs> You know, like maybe we'll get some good blind items in the Washington Post about this. Um, but yeah, I want the big capstone. And I think that that requires some distance. And it certainly yeah. requires for it to have actually ended. I would love a Woodward take. I would really, really love a Maggie Haberman take. That's such a smart idea. Um, or both, if they want to both yeah, do go. big uh, Trump overview books like you know bob woodward gets phone calls from donald trump just when he feels like talking about things so god only knows what that could be like right now <laughs> like yeah. there um i think there's just a lot of ground left to cover and it would be wise to give this dust a moment to settle before trying to cover it so i'm also with you i am buying the crap out of whatever the book that's going to come out in 2022 or 2023 that like takes the the full view of this time and that maybe i also looks at what happens to Trumpism without Trump in power, um, but we don't have it yet. I think the other piece about it's too soon is not just that it's too close to his presidential years, but unlike other presidents in my lifetime, what happens next to Trump is as, if not more interesting than what he did while in office. He's got legal trouble. There's all these Russian entanglements. There's all this money. Mm -hmm. Is he going to try to run again in 2024? What kind of a monkey feces throwing tantrum fit is this <laughs> right. going to be? Like, I think the the aftershocks is going to be more interesting than other presidents post White House years because yeah. most people go with grace and um, dignity into the sort of uh, almost like aging royalty place that right. presidents get mm -hmm. in America. And Trump, I know if you have watched it all, doesn't seem like he's inclined to go quietly <laughs> into giving speeches and do foundations and work on his library. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. And I'm banking on him not being offered like, you know, a professorship somewhere. <laughs> yeah, him, him like doing the Al Gore and being a guest lecturer at Columbia, uh, like when I was there is not yeah. not going to happen. Um, yeah, no, like, will he, right, will he try to run again? Will he try to launch a TV network and bring all of his fans yeah. over to that and just run his own campaign of disinformation right. Um, right. for the Republican machine? Who knows? Like, it, yeah, what will happen to him after he leaves the White House or after, as the Biden campaign says, the American government removes trespassers from the White House? I know. <laughs> Don't you think the Secret Service is going to so love to, like, switch the locks? I, I, I can't imagine the Secret yeah. Service has enjoyed this experience. No. no. I actually have a friend of a friend who is connected to the Secret Service who was like, they just hate having to deal with all of this. I, I can't imagine. Like, I can't imagine. You just know that it's true. But, yeah, yeah, I want a chapter about, like, whoever had to duct tape him to a chair this week to try to keep him from just completely freaking out. And then what is going to happen between now and January 20th? And then what happens after January 20th? All of that is part of the story. And um, I, I'm all the way in for whatever that book is. I don't know if you dropped this, if you saw these stories, um, sort of a uh, scuttlebutt kind of stuff coming out of the publishing industry about the prospect of a Trump-authored presidential book. Um, oh, God. And already people, someone at Crown, unnamed someone at Crown, unnamed someone at Knopf saying... I'm not sure we're interested in that. So uh, there will, I'm sure, someone, Regnery or whoever else it will be, Sky will horse. sign the big Trump book and it'll be a thing. I'm not interested in that. I mean, even if it was written like My Life by Bill Clinton, like written in the, in the mold of a presidential memoir, which it won't be, I don't want that. I, I can't look through his eyes at anything in any way. That, that's that's completely just... unattractive to me. I don't think it could be interesting at all or new at no. all, short of him having like a, I don't a spiritual conversion and decades of therapy. Yeah, he won't say anything. I mean, his document is his Twitter feed. I mean, in a very real way, that is the document of his his presidency. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I don't even think he would be interested. Right. I mean, a good memoir requires self awareness. Yeah. He could probably put something, he could have it ghostwritten by someone, put his name on it, and it would sell. I mean, that's, but that's a different kind of 
a question here. Uh, let's do the other political book on our list after um, uh, sponsor break. So neither of us have read this. Probably, you know, the, the number of people who have read this is probably in the dozens at this point, um, mm-hmm. even though it's coming it's out, out a week, week from today. It's A Promised Land by one Barack Obama, uh, the kind of book we were just saying that Trump would never write. Obama doing maybe the, the archetype of the regal, well-regarded president in, abs- or in retirement, in repose. The president in his repose is what Obama has been doing. <laughs> I'm not sure what to do with this book. The, the, here's the problem with buying it. The price is very high right now, right? Is that the problem with buying mm-hmm. a promised land by Barack Obama? Whole, selling feels dumb because this is a historical document. And holding feels wishy-washy. I'm not sure what to do here. Help me with my, <laughs> help me, Rebecca Shinsky. You're my only hope. Well, I agree that selling would be dumb. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what to do with it either, especially because it's the first of a of two presidential memoirs. Do we know that? We know that. I, yes, we know that. Okay. And that's not to say he couldn't write more after that. But if we take that as read, that there are going to be two of these, and this is the first in the set, and this is like his administration stuff, I don't know at what point in his presidency this first book cuts off or if it in or if it tries to capture the whole thing but i want the second book to include barack obama's reflections on this era mm-hmm. on what happened after he left office because certainly many things in the last 4 years have been a segment of the country responding to the obama presidency um and i think his thoughts on that would be fascinating and i want that second edition mm-hmm. to come out and probably be the bigger of the like the meatier juicier of the two so i think we just have to hold the, yeah. the stock is expensive right. we're not going to sell it but i don't think this is like the pivotal moment so i think this is a hold yeah i mean Hold alone as a historical document, you know, that sits in libraries, that historians look at. It has to be referenced in any historical document about basically the first decade or the first, um, the second decade of, of the 21st mm-hmm. century. His place in history as the first black president to be elected. I mean, there's just, and as a precursor to Trump, as a postscript to the neocons, the Cheney area, like it's just a super important point of time we you know in the, the the annals of economic history coming out of the great recession um health the story of healthcare in america i mean it sounds dumb to recount it all but until you f- remember how important a president is to anything goes on and how singular obama himself is and as a writer mm-hmm. um as good if not the best writer we've had as a president it just it just ticks all the boxes he's a he's a democrat the most beloved democrat in the world who is it that buys books tends to be Democrats, right? It tends to be educated people. So it's very difficult to construct out of the primordial substances of things that should endure something better than a promised land. But it's a little hard to know where in the mountain range of Obama books it's going to land. I think think that makes a lot of sense. It's also very long. I mean, this is probably more bought than read. We haven't talked. Are you going to read this book? Or when? Or like, what's what's your plan for a promised land? So... I'm waffling on my plan, but I pre-ordered the hardcover yeah. and it'll arrive you know, next week. Um, I really like the idea of listening to it on audio, but it is so long so and I'm long. such a slow audio listener that it would take me forever yeah. to get through. Like it would be multiple, at least like six weeks, if not two. The two land will have moved. Like tectonic plates will have moved by the time. Right. You, the promised we'll land will be a different, different place land. by the time you do. <laughs> Right. To get through, I think it's 17 hours on audio, um, if not longer. And so I'm I think I am going to read it in hardcover. That's what I did when um, What Happened by Hillary Clinton Mm. came out. I will probably, you know, spend a week with Barack and then I may listen to it on audio later or dip in and out of the audio, just depending on if it's good or if there are parts that I want to revisit and hear him, you know, read in his own voice but i um i think if we had if we had lost this election Mm. i would not be in a place emotionally to be reading the barack obama memoir but right now this is it feels like it'll be a nice thing to do for my brain and my soul next week well let's hook up maybe we should make this a bonus app because i'm going to read it in hardcover too we can move it around um i hadn't really Mm -hmm. i haven't figured out where in the queue but i think that would be a pretty good reader service too right if people are 768 what do we think about it 
pull out some nuggets um, and see what we see there. So that's a promised land. We're both holding. I think more more than holding, we're in a holding pattern because it could be yeah. phenomenal, right? I mean, if it's right. if we read it and we're like, oh my god, there's all this stuff, then maybe we have to reassess. Um, but uh, we're waiting as we come. Let's see what else do we have on our mutual. Oh, eat a peach by David Chang. Mm-hmm. This is an interesting one. I think I was thinking about what we said about eat a peach, and both of us said that we think it may have sort of established a new floor or a new paradigm for the chef memoir would suggest mm-hmm. to me that we should be high we we should be high on this and be buying this this thing on the other hand i don't know where chef memoirs exist in the firm like bourdain is the top like does, if i'm yeah. buying it means i'm thinking it's going up with bourdain is that what i'm saying right now rebecca if i'm buying is that what i'm doing i mm. I think you are. Yeah, well, and, right? And this book and I think a buy would also be an indication of Chang this as writer. book's life and, and Chang as a writer. Yeah. And mm. that's where I'm, I think, torn between what I hope will happen and what I think will happen. Like, mm. Eat a Peach is phenomenal. And I think it does belong in the pantheon of great food memoirs. I think by itself, it's just an excellent memoir. And he goes places that do, I think, establish what we want a chef memoir to be now. I would love to continue reading David Chang writing about his life, but I don't know that we're going to get that. It feels like he mined the like the biggest conflicts yeah. and the most interesting stuff, for lack of a better term. Um, that like He's in the phase of his life now where he's really resolving things mm. and moving into less conflict, which is healthy and wonderful, and I'm yeah. glad for him. Right. Um, People are but, boring like, happy, after therapy. That's the problem. Right. Happy, yeah, happy stories don't make yeah. great memoirs. <laughs> and it feels like he really dug the, this book out of himself. It does seem um, like it was difficult to do. I'm not sure he's going to come back for a drink from this particular well. Right. <laughs> yeah, so but I, I think, I think in a, any other year, this book could have been a big book of the yeah, year and so something too. that we talked about a lot. It's a, I'm really disappointed for David Chang that like he's one of the he's people doing whose okay. books were. Yeah, I think he's doing all right. Yeah. But like, it's a bummer for maybe it's a bummer for readers that this book didn't get more juice this year. Um, so I hope that it will continue to hang out. I think I'm holding for that reason. I think um, it has potential to be referred to. I hope that it is a paradigm shift in chef memoirs. I wish but don't think we will get another Big Chang memoir that does what this does. Yeah, I don't... Unless his life goes sideways again or there are other things that develop, which, you know, things can, or he tries to do something and there's undiscovered... I mean... He, from a multimedia point of view, what he's got like multiple Netflix things going on, he's got a podcast, like he doesn't seem congenitally uh, given to stasis. So yeah. he's going to do stuff. Now, maybe he'll be in a better headspace and have his ducks in a row that it's not so chaos. He's not such an agent of chaos as it seems like he was in a lot of the, the telling of this book, which could make for other interesting um, installments in the David mm-hmm. Chang story. That's true. I'm not, so I don't know. That That's possible. I also don't know, think he's going to be interested in just writing about food and cooking as a general topic. Like, I don't think he's going to be an MFK Fisher kind of a person mm-hmm. or a Bourdain kind of person who just like writes about food. He's a working chef, rest- restaurateur. That is, takes a lot of work. And anything that's not that, he seems to be going after the Netflix series, docu-series model, which is probably more remunerative than writing another book. So it just feels like this was his experimentation and memoir. What what kind of work would he like to do? What kind of thinking or experiences would he like to convey in written word form? I just don't have a good mental model of what that's going to be. So I think at the best I can hold. Um, yeah. I can't sell because I think it is really great. And I think it's going to be very easy to recommend to people over time. Um, you know, he is, is he the biggest celebrity chef out there now? Like, I guess you throw, hmm. where is, is it? I don't even know. This is not something I follow, but like, there's the Food Network people. Um, yeah. And I don't know if they're still like the Bobby Flays and the Giadas and the Emeralds and whatever. 
Like I don't know where Chang is in among the yeah, among I mean, the first of the orders of celebrity chefs. Yeah, I think they're kind of two different orders, really. That like the Food Network celebrity folks are selling. If they're selling anything, they're mostly selling cookbooks right. or like real, maybe really commercial kinds of memoirs. But it's mostly cookbooks. And then you have like Chang is the sort of is the Bourdain school of mm. food and culture. Um, restaurant culture, like the life of being a food person, you know, and, and caring about food and culture. And that's a different kind of story. But I also think it's like, as you were talking about MFK Fisher, it was reminding me, like, we don't get paradigm shifts in this kind of no. book that often. Like, food writing was really the same thing for like a hundred years. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know, until, really until Kitchen Confidential. And it wasn't just Kitchen Confidential that changed it. It was the person of Anthony Bourdain that, mm-hmm. that changed it. And it intersected with what cable TV was doing at the time. And then it intersected with what the internet did in terms of opening up the ways and the, how, what international travel really did in terms of opening up the ways that people could look look at the world and could experience the world or at least think about other places. And I don't know what would have to happen in like global culture to lend itself to another shift like that from a food and culture person. But I don't think that we're anywhere. I don't think we're going to see whatever the next shift is in that for like decades. We're closer to the beginning than to the end of this paradigm. Yes, we're, we're still living in the Bourdain paradigm and David Chang is the top of that game mm-hmm. now in absence of Anthony Bourdain. I think Edward Lee could um, could pop up there if he wanted to be a little more publicly visible. And I would read a straightforward Edward totally, Lee Totally, totally. Well, it's I interesting. As you actually. were mentioning Butterfield Graffiti, I have on my list to always like, keep in mind, is there another one of those coming out? But even like Blood, Bones, and Butter, right? We see mm-hmm. great memoirs. It's this. To make to make a series of really great books about food by a chef, you've got to be committed to writing. I know it sounds dumb to say, but sometimes people forget that Anthony Bourdain's first books were novels. Like right. he was coming at it from a writerly point of view, and that commitment to writing, you hold the food in your heart, but you're a writer. Is what Bourdain turned out to be. I can't hard to see that with you. Yeah, hard to see that with you. Yeah, you know. That's true. And I and he's a it's, he's a good writer, or yes. at least he tells his story well, but he does credit his co-writer mm-hmm. um, quite a bit. So it's, there's also a question there of like, uh, how good of a writer would Chang be yeah. on his own? Um, one that I didn't see get any attention this year and that I just stumbled on in a bookstore was um, Lisa Donovan's Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger. Yeah, I've seen you mention that. And, I've got that on my long Libby yeah, Holds list right now. it's a wonderful food memoir. She sort of came up under Sean Brock in the Nashville food scene. She's a pastry chef by trade, writes about being a woman in a very, not just male-driven industry, but in a very bro-y mm. restaurant culture. Um, Sean Brock's gone through a big transformation in the last couple of years as he got sober, and that's an interesting thing to read about as well but she's just a great writer and she writes in the book about um how writing had always been a part of her life and i i think there could be more great lisa donovan books but her name isn't big like david chang's so will she continue to get book deals and will we you know get more of her writing is a question yeah i think that's which hamilton um and chang would have to do it of writing primarily about themselves to writing about food Mm -hmm. and cooking whereas lee and bourdain Bourdain didn't write about himself. I mean, that's what we talked about in Eat a Peach. We didn't get the Eat a Peach from Bourdain. I mean, that's one of the great, you know, readerly sadnesses of our lives is that Mm -hmm. we didn't get that book. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And it's understandable. But to switch from writing about yourself to writing about not yourself is the trick of writing about, you know, being a someone that's in a content field, right? How do you move from, you know, using your own experience, leveraging your own name recognition, and the interest in your own dirt, so to speak, and turning that on other subjects. And how interested are you doing that? And how able are you to make that interesting um, to other people? Because the thing you have access to that other people don't have is you. Whereas anyone can write about fried chicken, right? Anyone can write about Thai street food or, you know, burritos or whatever, right? That's a different kind of a task. I think we felt like we had Bourdain telling us about himself, even though we really didn't because the voice that he wrote in was so singular. And that is something that we haven't seen anybody else. Yeah. We confused his voice with him. I think that was one of the great Bourdain mm -hmm. tricks is that Mm -hmm. false sense of intimacy 
we got from him by tell, seeing the world through his eyes. But in seeing the world through his eyes, he got to kind of hide himself, right, in its yeah. own way. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, are the rest just me? I mean, we don't have to spend too much time on the ones only. Are there any of these when you want to talk? I mean, I've only read two of the other mm. ones. Um, Let's see. Ooh, I read... I read Real Life. Did you read that one? I yet? did. I think, I think I'm this. I put on there because you know it got long listed. It's a debut novel. I think in our world it's well known. Outside of our world, it's not. So it gives me a chance to maybe buy first book. Very mm-hmm. talent. I think there's a very talented writer. Um, I think he has a long career ahead of him. This is a classic sort of autofiction memoir kind of a situation, which is great, and I'm not trying to denigrate that, except to say that there's room to expand scope and scale. So much like the, the masterwork is in front of you situation, I think there's scale, scope, other perspectives, other experimentations that Taylor's going to be able to do in the future that gives me a little value by buying real life where it is right now. I totally agree. Yeah. I second all those emotions. And I think it's interesting to think about real life in the same frame as we were using to talk about such a fun age yeah. that, you know, the way that Brandon oh, Taylor frames his character's experiences. Um, thanks. That was very validating. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the way that he he frames the character's experience, it, you know, it's set in like, you know, 2018 or 2020. It's a very... Um, specific place but what we have is a story about a young gay black man who is the only black person in his graduate program and the only black person in his group of friends um some of them are also gay but no one experiences the same kinds of Mm. marginalization and the overlapping marginalization that he does and the like uh, it's a gut punch of a book in the, I think the best possible way, but we are seeing the microaggressions and the not so microaggressions mm. that he experiences that have shaped, that have shaped him and that, um, that define being a black gay man in America. But it, I think they're true for being a black gay man in America in 2020. And they were true for being a black gay man in America 50 years ago. And sadly, they'll probably be true to some degree in the future and mm. um, that it's not anchored. The story isn't anchored so much to the particular moment in time, the way yeah. that the story of such a fun age is. And I think that it will lend real life a longer life, but I, I'll, I just 1 million percent agree that Brandon Taylor is going to have an incredible career and the masterwork is definitely yet to come, but it's such a hell of a debut that mm. like you come out of the gate like that and I'm definitely buying your stock. <laughs> Yeah, uh, good. I'm glad we're on the same page there. Um, a couple of end caps to series we should go through. One is our beloved Jack, we think is an end cap. Uh, you mm-hmm. turned me around on thinking that's more of an end cap than I thought it was when I first read it. By Sarah, hold on. Jack is a very interesting kind of a, <laughs> a question, I it guess. <laughs> um. I guess I walk through my options. Buying suggests that it will exceed the stature of Gilead itself or match it, right? Because it's part of that series. I can't get myself to buy. Does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds right. If I'm selling, I'm saying that it's a lesser work and it won't even warrant its place alongside Lila and home, let alone Gilead. Mm-hmm. Which I guess leads me to hold, which is, it is what it came out as, is a book for fans of Marilyn Robinson and the Gilead story and a satisfying, thoughtful, interesting, romantic um, entree into that universe. So I guess ultimately I need to hold, but it feels a bit of a kiss your sister kind of a hold. Like, I feel like it's a tie. <laughs> like, it's not, I don't know. I don't feel great about it's that so, hold. I don't know. Does that, is that reasoning? Yeah, what, what do you think? Where am it's I? It's tough. I had not landed on an answer for myself. Yeah, either, that's, so, she yeah, let so, me do all this work and just sit there and <laughs> let me go through it myself. Jeez. Louise. I'll think through it myself too. Okay. Um, yeah, I think, 
I mean, I think that realistically, most people who interact with that with the Gilead series in any capacity will probably start and finish. Yeah. That book is perfect. And it doesn't leave you like she could have just published that and it still would have been all the things that it is, you know, like that book by itself stands as a classic and just a real masterwork of fiction that I kind of think if we had just Gilead and Jack, Jack would have better chance of holding a long life because Mm. then it makes like you you end gilead knowing all these secrets about jack and then we get his story in jack and there's just a little bit of stuff that home fills in about him and lila doesn't really fill in much so like at the as the end of the four book arc it makes so much sense as the second in a pair it makes so much sense but like as a book that stands by itself i just don't i don't think that i mean i don't think jack has a life without gilead no i totally agree with that yeah yeah yeah, so i'm 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 not gonna buy it i cannot bring myself to sell (laughs) i'll lose money I'd, i'd rather lose money than sell it how about that? Yeah. yeah. We all make a few emotional investments, right. and I think this is one of mine. That's right. Just like I keep buying that, new notebooks thinking this will be the one that gets me over the hump to be more organized. But um, Right. Yeah. Yeah. Where, I, you know, if you're just going to pick one out of the four, you have to read Gilead. That's the one. Here's a and, question for you. So in uh-huh. three years when Jackson paperback, right? Yeah. People come, new people to Marilyn Robinson are going to come through Gilead. Which will be the most read second Gilead book? Oh. Because they're not in order. You can't tell from looking at them. If you read the blurbs, you don't know what order. People aren't looking at the pub date. Like, what are people going to pick up next after Gilead if they, if they, if they do pick up something? What percentage of people who read Gilead are going to read any of them? Oh, I think... I'll take the questions in reverse. Yes, I think okay. very few very people who few, read Gilead are going few. to go anywhere else because it is so self-contained. Yeah. And hmm. which one would you recommend if, if they read Gilead and say, I only read one more. Where are you pointing? Them? That's a hard, I feel like a hard question. It is a hard question. Maybe Jack, baby. Maybe, yeah, maybe Jack. I feel like if I got to rewrite the blurbs on these books, yeah. I would make it clear what you would benefit, like mm. what you would get from reading them in order. That Gilead sets up one thing that we get hints of, and then in Home we see more of those things fleshed out, and then in Lila we get to we get to know her, and then in Jack we finally get the answers yeah. to a lot of the questions yeah. that come up in the first book. But I don't think that FSG is going to package them that way. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't, I don't know. Like, I just, I don't think that we're going to see Jack lying by itself on a paperback favorites no, table. I can't see it so either. So, it's, I mean, if we weren't emotionally attached to Marilyn Robinson, Jack by itself is honestly probably a sell. I don't. Well, think that's, it really but it's not by itself though, because it's Marilyn right, Robinson and whatever. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I, it has to be a hold because I can't bring myself to do. It anything. has to be a hold. It has to be a hold. I, I didn't realize until we said it that if I'm recommending one, if you want to read one more of the four, I think Jack. I think it gives you Lila and and Home feel like you get. Jack feels the most different than Gilead as the other than the other two. I guess yeah, is what I'm trying I, to say. I think if you were going to skip one, you could skip Lila. Honestly, oh, I was going to say home. That's interesting. Oh well. Well, that's a different podcast, but, Rebecca. We could do yeah, this all day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can do that later. <laughs> yeah, we could do this all day. Stay tuned for our two-hour podcast our about whether or not you should read Home or Lila <laughs> next. That's what the content people want. That's a sell on a podcast. Idea. You, me, like and like that. four people on the internet. Yeah, right. You and me and the editorial staff of FSG. Uh, let's <laughs> see. Speaking of the end caps, Mirror in the Light, Hilary Mantel's last book in the, I guess, the Wolf Hall. I don't, what do we call it? The Cromwell Trilogy? I guess I think I don't it's know. the Cromwell Trilogy, yeah. yeah. I haven't read this. I will read this someday. Um, it's a big ask. Um, it's also, I haven't, I've read Bring Up the Bodies and Wolf Hall, the first two installments, also big asks. I guess 
I think also one that didn't wasn't served well by being 2020 book because it's not relevant mm-hmm. to anything you know really that we in America at least we're caring about right now. Which means that probably a buy is not the stupidest trade ever because this Wolf Hall the trilogy unlike Gilead you want to find out what happens it's historical fiction. England likes its historical fiction about its kings and queens. Kings and queens don't get old. As much as I I wouldn't buy it for myself, I think I'm getting pretty good value on the end of a hugely selling literary historical series that's won a bunch of awards. It's, you know, it's Ken Follett, Pillars of the Earth. That's the destiny, I think, of something like this. And that book, that series was going to sell for the end of time. So I guess... I'm strategically buying because the price is depressed for reasons not the fault of Hillary Mintel right now. I don't even know what to do with this. Yeah, it's tough. It's a tough one. Have you read any of these? I don't even know if you have. No, Mantel, I was going to say, partially I don't know what to do with these because Mantel is so far outside of what I'm interested in as a reader that I can't gauge if I think it's going to fall in that pillars of the earth kind of thing. And also, interestingly... A lot of people just read Pillars of the Earth and not the rest of them. Mm. So I think I would bank on Wolf Hall having a long life um, yeah. more than I would bank on people being invested in getting all the way to the mirror and the light mm. at the end. And poor Hillary Mantel, like if she had won the Booker three times in a row for all three Poor Hillary Mantel, she's only won the Booker twice. Oh my God, you're right. I didn't even but she think missed about a good, that. She missed a good marketing hook. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we're not sad for Hillary yeah. Mantel. Let's get that straight. Um, then probably a hold. I don't. I definitely couldn't get to a buy about her, but I don't have a good case to make. Yeah, sale, so. I, I think there's also mm. the sneaky English major element to this. Like this is English major catnip, especially if you're English English major. Um, mm. It's just going to be around for forever, I think. So um, maybe hold. Maybe hold is probably the the cagier one. The temptation would be to sell because. It's the third. The third never sells as well as the first or second. It also is the only one not to win the Booker. But I think if you're in for a penny, you might be in for a pound with Wolf Hall in a way that maybe Pillars of the Earth, uh, you aren't. Um, speaking of, well, this is a weird one, but like the last entries in a series, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes by Suzanne Collins, which is a prequel, a standalone prequel, I think, to the Hunger Games trilogy. It sold very well. And no one talks about it. I'm selling this right now. <laughs> I'm selling it too. I think it's the future history of books it. like this. Don't like Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Like the future history of these things yeah. is not great. They sell. It's no not, one talks about it ever great. again. Um, yeah, I think it's the uh, testaments of this year. It had a big oh, moment. No one's talking about the testaments over. right now. No. No. No one talking about no. that. I mean, I'm glad if you enjoyed it. Great, Suzanne Collins, get them checks, but. Um, I just don't think, I, I think this was selling to fans of the series of which there are many still, mm-hmm. including myself, but I didn't pick it up. Um, but I just don't think it's converting anybody else. And the story of hunger games, I think is largely over. And this is a, you know, a, an ovation, right? This is an ovational work, which is fine. Mm-hmm. It's great. Have fun. Sure. Speaking of ovational works, another that sold midnight sun by Stephanie Meyer. I'm selling. Okay. I think also an ovational work, kind of in the same vein. Am I wrong? Tell me how I'm wrong. No, about I think that. so. I think that Stephanie Meyer really got lucky in releasing Midnight Sun in the middle of quarantine when people needed yeah. something comforting right. and fun escapist. and filled with nostalgia yeah. and escapist. And yeah. it probably would have sold fine in any mm. other moment, but like she benefited from the timing there. She just got lucky. I don't, I'm not. I don't think that you know. In another five years, yeah. another new take on the twilight books is still going to land um yeah and then the last one on the list is one that i, I think the biggest surprise yet, of the year i think a lot yeah. of these other, we didn't mention this in our previews did we i don't remember if we yeah. did i don't think we did but and i haven't read it yet it's i haven't on my read it either soon list but i think i'm buying the crap out of mexican gothic too. by sylvia marino garcia because she seems unstoppable 
every book is different. I, I have gone and looked at her backlist mm-hmm. and she does that thing where she's writing in all kinds of different genres, telling all sorts of different stories. You can't predict what's going to happen next, but readers seem to stick with her and be down for whatever she wants to do um, in the way that we are like for Colson Whitehead. They're yeah. doing different kinds of things, but she's like, hey, here's my next trick. And it's totally different mm-hmm. from the one she did before and from the one she'll do next. And I'm in. And not for nothing, for adult hardcover fiction, this book sold for the, I mean, it's genre. It's, there's not a lot of people of color on the hardcover bestseller list. This one got on there. It stayed on there. I think reader readers, readerly readers really like this book. Um, it's probably of the books here of the new books. Hmm, what am I trying to say here? If I had to bet on a paperback favorite stalwart out of this list, I think I'm picking Mexican Gothic for the fiction table. For cast, mm, forget about yeah. it. Nonfiction, paperback favorites, no doubt. Paperback classics or whatever for nonfiction. But I think this one, it's genre. Again, I haven't read it, but it's also very readable from what I've heard. Halloween comes around every year. People are going to be recommending this, and it's going to be mm. on book riot lists of spooky reads to read. You know, I just think this this fits a nice... This There's a niche for this, and the niche is bigger than we thought because it ain't nothing... For you not to be a big, I don't know what kind of advance you get. I don't think it was a huge one. We would have heard about it. Or at least we haven't talked about it. It's it's a big deal in this day and age for people to be picking up your book for the first time. And I feel like a lot of people were for Mexican Gothic because mm-hmm. of the sales. And I hear about yeah. it. I see it. It's out there. And it was hard this year to make this list to not and not be on one of our preview lists because there just wasn't that much oxygen for books. There That's wasn't that true. much space for a yeah. surprise. And I think this is maybe for me, and maybe publishing people would tell me different, podcast at bookwright.com, this is one of the surprise one of the great upside surprises uh of the year. So I'm I'm glad to see it. Um I'm definitely I'm usually not good with sort of scary books. I'm I'm lend, I'm given to believe this one's kind of uh freaky, so I'm not sure, but I want to be in on this train. So I'll I'll cover my eyes and get on uh, and read it eventually. So we're both buying unseen, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> Uh, that's a pretty big vote of confidence. By, yeah. by well, I think that's a sign of that we should be buying it, right? Because we're yeah, we're like I I gotta get, I, the, the FOMO here. We, we got to buy Tesla. We got to yeah, buy. It's also uh, out, right. Guy. It's outside the genre that I usually read, but enough people that yeah. I trust have there said not only that there it's great, it but that they think I would like it. That I'm in. Yeah. There it is. That's excellent. That was so much fun. That yes. our favorite reads of the year will be coming later. Um, I don't know when. Sometime in 2020. Uh, we have another bonus episode next week, Rebecca. This was a late-breaking um, decision to do next week. Amanda Nelson will be joining us. And I'm not going to say anything about it. I'm just going to get you out on the sound cue here in just a second uh, as a hint. But, Rebecca, thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Have a good one.